All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks, a weekly podcast. We have a somewhat abbreviated episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast. No Chris Newmarker this week, no newsmakers of any kind. Well, we have newsmakers, but not in that sort of podcasty sense. We have an interview that I did with John McCutcheon, who is the CEO and president of EBR Systems. EBR Systems is making a very cool wireless pacemaker-like device for the left ventricle. And John will get into why that's important. In this episode, I wanted to talk with John because I wanted to catch up with him at EBR, but uh, I also knew John from his uh, a, two pre- a, a company, a previous company, two companies back. Uh, John and I uh, started talking probably 15, 20 years ago when he was CEO of Emphasis Medical. And uh, I didn't initially intend to, to have this interview timed with Medtronic's Disappointing news this week uh, about the advisory committee's uh, decision not to recommend approval of uh, Medtronic's Simplicity Reynolds Renovation device. Uh, but it did remind me of an experience that we had had in 2008 when uh, an advisory committee voted against approving Emphasis Medical's uh, Zephyr Bronchial Valve, which was for emphysema. So back then, there were a number of uh, interventional pulmonology companies that, that were developing devices and technologies that could help patients who had diminished lung capacity. And there was a lot of hope and promise around it. And uh, while there was some clinical success, Emphasis Medicals uh, came up against an advisory board that John can explain better than I. At the time, the, the environment around the FDA was very politically charged, and there was a lot of uh, consternation, a lot of, I don't want to say animosity, but the FDA wasn't working as well with the medical device industry as it is today. And uh, 2008 was probably a lower point, if not the low point. So John was CEO of Emphasis Medical. Emphasis Medical went before an advisory board committee got a negative vote, even though it had met its clinical endpoints. And again, John can get into the, we'll get into this in the conversation. And that really, um, well, led to a lot of different things. It led to uh, Emphasis Medical ultimately being sold to a, a rival company, Pulmonics, which would 10 years later eventually get the FDA approval necessary for the uh, Zephyr valve. But it also causes the medical device industry to l- really look inward, to really question whether or not um, investing in devices made sense if there seemed to be some sort of capricious uh, approach by the FDA, or at least an unpredictable approach. I don't want to say capricious, an unpredictable FDA that you really couldn't project whether or not uh, a device had a chance of approval, even if it had data that supported it. So after Emphasis Medical came, uh, came to an end, uh, John McCutcheon was uh, very honest about his disappointment back then, as were a lot of the investors. And uh, that sort of, again, left led to a groundswell of um, questions from industry that led to Josh McHauer 
conducting a survey of the industry that led to conversations with the FDA. Jeff Shearn came in and that all led to the FDA relationship that we have today, which is markedly better. I, I can't find anyone who would speak ill of the agency anymore. Yes, there's requirements for data. Yes, you know, sometimes the bar seems higher than it need be, but uh, I haven't heard anyone uh, wring their hands or express any concerns about the FDA like they used to. So, John McCutcheon's story at Emphasis Medical just reminded me of what uh, Medtronic might be going through this week, even though the environment is different, the broader environment is different. When you have a product that you're working on for years and it goes before a board and you think you have the information you need, the data you need to get approval, and then you don't, sort of what happens next? Uh, Medtronic is going to push forward and try to uh, work with the FDA to get some level of approval for uh, the Medtronic for the Simplicity Rental Renovation Device. Rental Renovation is a is a, another technology that I covered back at that time uh, when it was already in, when even before that with the Foundry uh, through the acquisition by Medtronic. So it's another long time story that we were sort of hoping, I was hoping would come to a positive outcome and uh, it doesn't appear to be there yet. We'll see what happens. So John can share his experiences as CEO of Emphasis Medical, but we didn't obviously focus on just that. Um, I did apologize for bringing it up again to John because I, I just feel like I, I keep asking him to relive this bad experience. But as you'll hear, John has completely moved on. Uh, he's a f- he's glad that Pulmonix acquired the, the Zephyr, glad that they got approval for it, glad that he can contribute to somehow to to helping people with emphysema uh, live more comfortable lives. But he's now entirely focused on uh, EBS. And uh, in between that, he led Soteryx uh, to an acquisition by Smith & Nephew. So John's fine. <laughs> he's doing great. Super nice man. And uh, EBR Systems is really just uh, got a really, really cool device that I know you'll appreciate learning more about. So again, uh, I, I wasn't when I, when I initially planned on talking with John, it wasn't to connect Emphasis Medical's experience to what Medtronic is going through today. But uh, I did talk to him this week, and then the Medtronic news came out, and it just seemed like a, a, a good opportunity to bring, uh, to, to contribute to the discussion about industry's relationship with the FDA through a bit of a history lesson with Emphasis Medical. So I'm really grateful to John McCutcheon for his time. And for uh, the time you took, not only to relive the emphasis story, but also to uh, introduce me to EBR. I, I wasn't really aware of it, what his story was. And uh, it's one of these longtime medtech stories that uh, may take a while to uh, to find its way onto the market. But once it does, it could help a lot of people. And uh, that's a, 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 a one of the medtech industries and folks with the medtech industry, one of their greater qualities is their resiliency and their uh, desire to stick with something until it gets to where it needs to be. So hope you enjoy this conversation with John McCutcheon. But before we go, uh, please do join us at Device Talks West. It's happening October 18th and 19th. Seriously, it's going to be a great two days. Uh, the agenda is shaped up nicely. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see folks talk about medical devices and product development. And uh, it's just going to be a powerful way for you to improve your skill sets, to expand your network, and to have some fun. We're going to have some fun. We'll have networking uh, on the 17th, 
And then two days of conferences on the 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. So please go to devicetalks.com to register for that. And while you're there, register for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays, which is happening this Tuesday at uh, 4 p.m. And it's sponsored by our friends at S3 Connected Health. I brought this up before. They're a very, they were our very first paying sponsor for Device Talks Tuesday. And they've been back every year to do one. And they always do a great job. Uh, the title is Digital Health Innovation for MedTech. From concept to commercialization, Bill Betton, Director of Solutions of S3 Connected Health, will be there. So will Randy Schissel. He is COO of Voxy Health. So uh, this will be a conversation, light on the PowerPoint, heavy on the conversation, heavy on questions from the audience. So bring your problems, bring your questions. You'll find some solutions at Device Talks Tuesday. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that. You can watch it live at 4 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, or you can watch it on demand. But uh, we'd love to have you there live. We'd love to uh, ask your questions uh, to the panel and get you the answers that you need. All right. With all that being said, thanks for allowing me to walk down memory lane. Now let's uh, talk with John McCutcheon, the CEO of EBR Systems. Well, John McCutcheon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to uh, to learn the EBR story. I've been following your uh, your exploits in medtech for a number of years now. Lots of interesting stories there. But but first, let's hear your story. What was your first uh, your first job in medtech? What drew you to the industry? First job in medtech was Bentley Laboratories, which was a division of American Hospital Supply before oh, okay. it was acquired by, by Baxter. Mm-hmm. So I sold. I got a job in sales out of college. It was a training program. I was living in Southern California. And they had a program. They'd say, well, we'll train you in our in the technology and in sales, but you have to agree to be relocated to an open territory. So I was you know, young and single and you know adventurous. And, and so uh, did that. And for three months later, they shipped me off to Florida. Wow. And I had the uh, Tampa uh, area. It kind of actually covered most of Florida and sold oxygenators, cardiopulmonary equipment, and the Edwards heart valve. That was my front end exposure. Got to see what happened, you know, at the hospital level, at the physician level, and it really satisfied my curiosity about you know, kind of getting into the medical business, uh, understanding how medical uh, device purchase decisions are made. It was intimidating. I was, you know, young twenty something, and I'm selling heart valves to CV surgeons. I bet. At the beginning, it's like, I was a kid. What can I tell <laughs> But after a while, you kind of learn, you know, they're just people too. And you learn that you have the domain ex- or the deep experience on the product. Yeah. No, you're not the doctor. And it, it's a really good introduction, I think, into the industry for me. And, and that company was uh, a good training ground for a lot of med tech execs, right? Yeah. 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 What uh, was it about, about uh, working? Yeah. What was it about that, that environment? It was... A startup before startups were cool, right? So Bentley <laughs> Labs was a was a startup in probably I don't know the year it was founded, but it would have been likely in the seventies. I'm thinking, but at that point it was more mature. And I saw my career there. At first, I thought, well, maybe I'll go corporate. This is uh, uh, you know as ambitious, and this could be a corporate path. But what I realized along the way there was that you have to really manage up in a corporation. And where I get my passion is kind of where the rubber meets the road. It's the customer, the technology, 
and this is not to knock anybody who this is their career path. It's different for everybody. But the higher you go in the corporation, it feels to me like you lose that touch point. And so that's, I had friends that were working at DVI up in Northern California at the time. And that's when I transitioned from Baxter into the startup world. Interesting. So did you know at the time that that was where your energy was going to be coming from the startup world? Or was it a, was there a question mark? At the beginning, it was not an intent. I thought corporate seemed like a great path. And then as I wore that badge for a little bit, it became more apparent that entrepreneurship was my calling. And then when I got to DVI, that just confirmed it. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And that's been, you know, 40 plus or almost 40 years. So you ultimately rose to a CEO role. You were a CEO at uh, Emphasis Medical. That was your first CEO role. That's right. That's where you and I first got acquainted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what was it about? Uh, had you always had that as, as part of your uh, your plan to, to lead a company? Yeah, it was very amb- ambitious and I wanted to work my way up. And so Perclose was probably the, the, the opportunity that got me close to the, the, being able to become a CEO. Worked my way from a marketing manager, director of marketing, up to eventually VP sales and marketing, global VP sales and marketing, but always wanted to be in that general management CEO role. I really had that ambition. So it was a very focused strategy to, to get there. How does the VP, the skill set you get being VP of sales and marketing translate into running a company where you have no sales and nothing to market? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it is an interesting transition. Well, <laughs> I think when you're in a marketing role in particular, you get exposure to all the various departments. And so I've always been very curious and and not just try not to be funneled in my uh, in my functional domain when I was in sales and marketing. So you get very involved with R&D, with manufacturing, production, forecasting, understanding there's a back order. Why is there a back order? What's going on in the, in the manufacturing process? You know, you, you interface with, with finance. And so, uh, and at Perclose, I mean, Hank Plain was the CEO and he really treated me as a partner and he was a great mentor. And so I had a seat at the table at everything that was happening. I was involved in the IPO at Perclose and, and did a lot of the pitches to the bankers. Mm, so wow. I got a lot of broad exposure that really set me up well to be you know, a CEO. And really, again, what I think of as a general manager, not just a functional uh, you know, siloed domain expert. Interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about emphasis. I mean, it's a story, like you said, that's where we first started talking and I was covering your Company's technology, which we can get into a little bit, is in the pulmonary space. But more intimately, we talked about your interactions with the FDA, and I feel like every time we reconnect, I, I want to revisit this story, and I feel like yeah. I'm pulling a rusty nail out of your hand again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to dwell on it. But talk a bit about emphasis. Was one of the cooler interventional pulmonary spaces of uh, companies, rather, in a space that was really rising at the time, and I think is kind of having a resurgence. But talk about emphasis, if you would. Yeah, I, I'm really proud of the emphasis story, and it's not a rusty nail. It's oh, it's, good. Salemi, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's bringing it up again. God, this guy. I'm past. Yeah, it was it was a great learning experience for me, and a and a life lesson in in a lot of ways. It was one of the most gratifying jobs I've had. We I, I, we built a great team, a great technology. Uh, we're really helping patients. I ran a one of the first 
pivotal trials in that space and had successful outcomes there. And it was a difficult time with the FDA, as you and I spoke about in the past. And people may not remember back, but in the summer of 2008, there were the FDA whistleblowers that were, uh, there were some physicians that thought that the the administrators were overruling them. And so they they went out and went public and and the administrators got very scared to take on some of the, the, the medical advisors there. So it's this very confrontational time within the FDA and they FDA goes through cycles. And so at the time it was a little more anti-industry and then this specific group that we had was even you know, more anti-industry and it didn't work out well for us. So we went to panel. Uh, we had talk about, talk about the product for a moment, just because I don't think we've talked about. What oh, the sorry. Was. No, that's fine. This was a pulmonary valve, right? That you, you would put in and would allow air to go one way, but not the other. Yeah. So people with emphysema, they their alveoli break down and the lung loses its elasticity or squeeze. So they can inhale, but they can't exhale. And if we, and you can kind of simulate this yourself. If you breathe in real deeply and do shallow breaths out and do that for very long, you'll get really winded. And imagine not being able to exhale. It's it's a miserable feeling. So these people are kind of, they've got some healthy lung, but it's being squeezed out by the unhealthy lung. And the theory was you could isolate by, by putting a one-way valve in the airway that feeds the diseased tissue, the air could evacuate from that valve, but it couldn't go back in. And you'd eventually get that overinflated lung to collapse. And that would allow the functional lung to then expand and breathe more normally. So great idea. And it worked. And we learned a lot in, in the, the trial itself. There was a lot of things we didn't know. And we found out there's a phenomenon or a condition called collateral error. So we didn't, we were trying to empty certain lobes, but we didn't realize at the time and nobody realizes that some lobes are isolated. So if you put a valve in in an isolated lobe, it'll collapse and then the surrounding lung will fill in the space. If the lobe isn't completely isolated, there's collateral airways coming in, it'll just keep refilling. And at the time we're like, why, why won't this one collapse and this one will? Interesting. But we learned and now in pulmonics who now, uh, who acquired the, you know, the emphasis uh, assets and has now been very successful with it, they introduced a product that would identify collateral flow so that you can then diagnose it and and more precisely target where you put the valves. And it's the standard of care now for that disease. That's great. And just to revisit the interaction with the FDA again, trying to remember how the committee voted. If you would just quickly share that, that story again and why it was so significant, because it was a low point, I think in relations, looking back now, it looks like night and day to me anyway, as, a, as an outsider. I'm hoping you can confirm that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was pre, pre-Jeff pre Sharon who came in, I think, made some r- radical, favorable, you know, well-needed, must-needed changes. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different era. And and yeah, I've got great stories about FDA today. So it's like, uh, it's <laughs> nice and, and I can't uh, say en- enough how well uh, uh, good partners they've been at EBR here and at Soteric. So it's very different. Uh, but we went to panel. We had met our endpoints, but there, there was, uh, it was clear that the FDA was, did not want us to be approved and made a very strong case at panel and kind of came at us from all directions. It was, it was a poorly run study. They met the endpoints, but it wasn't clinically significant. And kind of this 
came at it from all angles and you only have like 45 minutes to present as a company and to rebut every allegation was just impossible. And the panel voted us down. Uh, and, uh, and it was shocking because when you meet your primary endpoints, that's almost unheard of. And in fact, there are companies who miss their primary endpoints and still get approved. And an, right. an example of that was Ismatics, who didn't meet their primary endpoints, but then got approved after that. So it sounds like griping when I talk about it, and I don't mean to, to but it's just, I, I try to be as factual as possible. Yeah. It was a it was a hard thing to go through. It it didn't seem fair at the time. You know, there's all there's a lot of emotion around it. It's a life lesson, and it was a, a good career lesson. And what I'm proud about is the technology lived on. We did meet the endpoints. It does work clinically. It is good for patients. It's now being deployed and uh, successfully by Plumonics, and I cheer their success. I I really. I follow them, and and every time there's good news, I uh, you know I, I try to do my Twitter uh, like or my <laughs> and uh, really want to see them succeed because it's it's something we're really proud of. That's great, and 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 I think emphasis is probably one of those stories that led to sort of the introspection to met Josh Macauer's study to the real sort of a concerted effort to try to affect some change at the FDA. So they took it to heart. They, yep. they did some introspection after that and it, and it really changed. So it was a, I don't know if it was the trigger, but it right. might've been one of, one of many that really have changed things. And now, as I said, I think the FDA looks at it, they're very rigorous, right? So there's no, you can't skate through by being friends. You have to deliver, but it's fair and it's, it's transparent and they tell you what they want. And if you deliver what they tell you, then everything's good. And and so it's a very it's very uh, again transparency probably the best way to, to to state it. Right. So just quickly in between that and this time you were CEO of Soterix. Talk just quickly about the company and you had a successful outcome there as well. Soterix was a meniscal repair device. So the knee meniscus is the it's the soft cartilage between their femoral head or your, your, your femur and your tibia. And so if you don't have one, you're, you kind of get bone on bone. If it's torn, it, it's painful. And so the standard of care has always been what they call meniscectomy. They would just trim it and cut it out. There's a lot of euphemisms, but they'll say, well, we're just going to clean up your knee. Which mm-hmm. means they're, they're shaving the meniscus out. And there's a lot of data that shows that you know you need your meniscus. Back in the 50s and 60s, they would just take the whole thing out. They would just remove it. And then they saw that that led to osteoarthritis, which makes sense. You've got bone on bone and that meniscus is there to kind of protect it. So more and more they go, well, we'll just do a partial meniscectomy. But partial is in the eye of the beholder. And there's some tipping point where you take too much tissue. And again, you've disrupted the mechanics and that leads to arthritis. There was also a belief that the meniscus was uh, resistant to healing. There's not a lot of blood supply within the meniscus. On the outside, the periphery of it, it's vascularized, but as you get more central, it gets less and less uh, vascularized. They call that the white zone. So there was a belief in the community, the uh, the, um, sports medicine community, that a lot of tears wouldn't heal, and so you just had to do a partial meniscectomy. We didn't believe that because there was literature that showed that it could heal, 
We believe that it was the methods used to repair it that were the problem, not that it was inherently couldn't heal. We believed if you actually could get a suture around the tear and reduce that tear, stabilize it, that even the non-vascular zone of the meniscus will heal. And I think we ended up proving that. And so we had a mechanism, a device, it was pretty clever. It was a suturing device that would go in the knee. And the difficulty with the meniscus is it's wedged really tightly in your knee. So you're not gonna get in there and sew it manually. It's very difficult to do, but we had a, a suture passer that would go into the knee with just one upper, the upper jaw, and it would go on top of the meniscus, and then you'd slide in the lower jaw. So you kind of had it in two motions. And at that point, it's locked into the knee and you pass the stitches, but then you slide the lower jaw back out and then you can retract the whole system. And it turns out that you can repair all kinds of tears that were thought to be non-reparable before that. There's a great example, it's called a horizontal cleavage tear, which kind of goes through the center of the meniscus. There's this almost universally believed those didn't heal. And today I think that's been reversed. And we showed that in fact, that, that they can heal. Smith and Nephew was the leader in meniscal repair for other types of tears that were thought to be repairable. And then they've added to their portfolio by acquiring Soteric so that they can now treat every tear imaginable. That's great. No, that's a, that's a terrific outcome. It's a, and you were CEO there for nine years. Let's get into the EBR story. As we were talking prior to my pushing record, uh, the, the company has a longer history, considerably longer than you're joining or considerably prior to your joining in, in June of uh, 2019. Talk a bit about EBR's origins, if you if you could, even though you weren't there at the time. Yeah. So, so let me just tell you how I got involved, then I'll go to the origins. When, sure. when I sold Soterix to Smith & Nephew, I got a call from Alan Will. And Alan's, a, you know, everybody in the audience knows Alan Will. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a legend. But Alan, I worked for him initially at DVI. Uh, he was the president CEO. Uh, he was on the board at Emphasis because uh, Emphasis came out of the foundry, which was an Allen Will company. So now Alan and I have a long association and have worked together in you know, many different ways. So he had was interim CEO at the time at EBR. Alan's now at a point in his career where he sits on boards. He's executive chair. That's really what he wants to do. But he found himself as interim CEO and, and it was kind of his baby and he didn't want to give it up to just anybody. And when he knew I was available and he knew my experience at emphasis on, you know, kind of clinical management, he thought I'd be a good fit at EBR. So he called me up and we, we spoke about that and I ended up joining him. He's my chairman here now. Uh, so I started here in 2019. Now EBR had been founded in 2003. So it's now a 20 year startup, still not on the market. And you could look at that multiple different ways say, gee, what's what's wrong if it's taken that long? But I would assert that EBR was ahead of its time when it started the technology. It's it's really sophisticated technology, and I'd love to get into it here. But it, it was ahead of its time, and there was a lot of development. And I looked at it, this is somewhat maybe selfish in a way, but it, it, at the time I got on board, they'd already worked through all the big issues. And the company had already been recapped. So as a CEO, you're looking at the cap table, you don't want to come in with a huge preference stack and a lot of, you know, a lot of you know, baggage on the, on the cap table. 
that had already been cleaned up. There was new money in. So it was almost like a, a Series B company with 15 plus years of R&D work that had gone into it. So for me, it was uh, it's unfortunate for the early people because they put a lot of blood, sweat and tears in it and then aren't participating in kind of the success. But for me coming in at that point, it was a good time because it, again, everything had been worked through and now it was more of an execution phase. And EBR was in the clinical enrollment uh, phase when I started. And again, that, you know, Alan watched me work at emphasis and, and drive the clinical trial there and knew that I had you know, certain skills in that area. And EBR also, the FDA granted EBR systems breakthrough device designation the month after you started, right? Yeah, More it, or less. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I can't take credit for that. I was going to say, you do quick uh, work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually, that was my uh, chief regulatory officer, Madri Bot, who, who drove that process in 2019. And uh, that's been great. It gives the FDA more latitude to meet with you informally. If there's a queue in terms of submissions, they put you in the front of the queue. And then, of course, there's new technology add-on payment benefits once you get to market. So, so that's uh, really a big deal, and, and uh, we're happy to have that. Uh, but I came in, it was pre-COVID, just pre-COVID, 2019. We were in the middle of our pivotal trial. And the my charter was to get the pivotal trial enrolled. I believe we were we were shooting for the end of 2020, and we were tracking well. And in March of 2020, uh, COVID you know, changed the world, and one by one, sites started shutting down and not doing cases. And it's like, oh oh my gosh, how are we ever going to get this done? And we didn't we haven't talked about what EBR does, but we're in heart failure. And these are really sick patients. So this is advanced heart failure. And we're getting patients that ha- can't be treated any other way. So they're they're the sickest of the sick. Let's talk about the product. Yeah, so it's the, the WISE, it says WISE, YCRT system. Yeah, and CRT stands for cardiac resynchronization therapy. Uh, it's in the, the pacemaking space, if you will, uh, cardiac rhythm management. So the big companies in this space are Medtronic, Abbott, Boston Scientific, and pacemakers have different uh, segments. So there's bradycardia, where you would just do the right ventricle pacing or right atrium, right ventricle pacing. There are ICDs where they actually defibrillate the heart or do a high voltage shock to uh, defibrillate. And those are also on the right side. And then CRT is when you're pacing both the right ventricle and the left ventricle synchronously. And what happens in these patients with heart failure, their left heart gets bigger and bigger, gets distended, it pumps less efficiently, and it's not synchronous with the right ventricle. And so what you do with CRT is you you stimulate the left ventricle at the same time, you get it back in synchrony, and it actually reverses the heart failure and shrinks the heart back to more normal, uh, more efficient state. The ejection fraction goes up their end systolic volume goes down and the patients feel much better, a better quality of life and so on. So that's the standard of care and it works great, but it doesn't always work. And the lead that goes from the can into the left ventricle, it's called a coronary sinus lead for this uh, indication, often can break, can get infected. Sometimes they're not able to get that lead in place. 
And so we have a leadless system where we take a tiny little pellet and we, we say it's the size of a grain of rice. And it, it literally is like a cooked grain of rice. It's very tiny. And on the end of this little pellet, there's a, a tines. And we go with the catheter through either the femoral vein or the femoral artery into the left ventricle. And then we push the tines into the wall of the left ventricle and it retains that little pellet. We call it a receiver electrode. And inside this tiny little capsule or pellet are a series of piezoelectric receivers that take ultrasound en energy and convert it to electrical energy. So we, we resonate it or zap it with ultrasound at a certain frequency that will then elicit a pacing pulse. And do that synchronously with the pacemaker that's on the right side. So is it the only, is ultrasound used broadly for this? No, that we're, this is, we're the only company that has a solution like this. So there are leadless pacemakers by Medtronic and Abbott. Sure. Uh, Boston's has one in development, but they're different. They're self-contained. So they have batteries in them. They're self-contained pacemakers and they're small, but they're still about 20 times larger than our device. Hmm. And because of the size difference, they're not suitable for the left ventricle. The left ventricle circulates the arterial circulation. So it goes to the brain and the coronaries. And if there's any thrombus formed, you run the risk of, of increased strokes and embolic events. And so they're only indicated for the right ventricle. Ours is so tiny, it gets completely ingrown in tissue. It gets endothelialized within a matter of about 30, 45 days. Wow. So there's no chance that it's going to generate any clots. And so it becomes inert. And then we have a, an ultrasound transmitter that's placed subcutaneously to power that little pellet. Gotcha. So the fact that it's powered remotely lets us make it so small. And that's the secret sauce or why we can place it in the left ventricle. So there's no other device like this that you can pace within the left ventricle. And that has a lot of clinical advantages. So what what? Is the how frequently does one need to pace the left ventricle? Is it a gaping hole in in that treatment paradigm that we're unable to do that right now, or is it a very small subset of patients who require that? Well, it, it it's a large niche, I would say. So we estimate it to be a you know two billion, two point one billion dollar market opportunity for us. So it's it's not small, and so that it's a it's a large uh, large market opportunity. And when they can't treat those patients. There's no other option. They're either going to go on to an LVAD, mm. uh, a heart transplant, or they're just going to be miserable and continue to decline. There's nothing else they can do. And these are specific type of patients with, it's heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And then they also have an electrical signal where their QRS signal on the EKG is, is lengthened. And so that's a, that's a signal that they're having this, this, this synchronous activation of the right left ventricles. And those patients really benefit from this. Will there be once approved opportunities for treating patients with only your device? Or is it usually done in conjunction with another pacemaker on the other side of the heart? So initially, it would always have a, what we call a co-implant. Co-implant. We do have visions for standalone, but that would take some more technological advancements. And so those are kind of pipeline issues that, mm -hmm. wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be an early indication. And the reason we got the breakthrough designation is that our target patient population doesn't have any other option. So the other nice thing is we're not competing with any of these large incumbents. 
we're not trying to take share from Medtronic or Abbott or Boston. We're actually complementary with their systems. And what's really exciting is if you follow the success of Medtronic's Micra or Abbott's Aver, their leadless pacemakers, they've been wildly successful. Many of those will need to be upgraded to biventricular pacing, meaning that someday those patients will need left ventricle pacing. We can pair up with the Micra or the mm. Aver. And then you have completely leadless biventricular pacing, which is really exciting to a lot of our investigators and clinicians. So where are you now with uh, your clinical trial enrollment and progress, and what are your uh, what's your projection for hopefully getting positive results that you can take to the FDA? Yeah, well, the, the good news is we've announced our positive results. So we we've completed our enrollment and uh, and follow up, and we released our results at the Heart Rhythm Society meeting this year in May. It was held in New Orleans. Oh, okay, great. And we met. Uh, we, we far exceeded our, our uh, expectations and met our primary endpoints. Uh, we had a co-primary endpoint safety and efficacy and significantly at a you know, p-value of 0.003 on one side and point, you know, less than 001 on the other side met both endpoints. So we're kind of off to the races now in terms of uh, getting our final PMA submissions we're doing a modular submission, so we're we've got um, several more modules to go, but we expect to get. You know, it's hard to predict the approval timelines, but mm-hmm. sometime uh, maybe uh, end of the of 2024, uh, roughly plus or minus, and then uh, off to the market. And then in the interim, I mentioned to you off off Mike that we also went public in mm-hmm. ASX in uh, almost two years ago, November of 21, to help capitalize the company. Talk about ASX and, and why did you choose that route? So it was somewhat opportunistic. We, I, I mentioned the company had been recapped before I started. So that was in 2017. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the investors that came in in 2017 were Australian private investors. So there were two big uh, company venture companies, one called Branded Capital and the other MH Carnegie and Associates. Mm-hmm. And behind them, their limited partners are the big superannuation funds in Australia. So I don't know if people are familiar with that term, but they're kind of government mandated retirement funds. Everybody in Australia contributes to a superannuation fund and then their pension funds, essentially, hmm. and then they, they invest. So we happen to have on our, our register uh, a number of the very large superannuation funds in Australia. So when we were talking about raising capital in 2021, they were kind of keen on us testing the market since they already, you know, a lot of the public investors were already investors in, in EBR. So we did a test the waters roadshow in June of 21 that went really well. And it was uh, still during, well, I say roadshow, it was a Zoom roadshow, <laughs> still COVID era. And then uh, Alan and I did the actual pitches, the roadshow pitches. And again, not like the old days, the traditional roadshows where you're in and out of airplanes and Ubers and you know, going uh, kind of location, location. We sat at our desks for hours and hours a day, just at, well, there was evening because it was uh, Australia. So we'd have to stay up late at night, do the pitches. And we successfully got out and enlisted in November of 2021. It's a great way to raise capital. Uh, they've been great supporters, and uh, we just did a, a secondary placement in in June. 
So we're, we're very well capitalized to execute on our plan, get through the PMA process and get to commercialization. One never knows, of course, how these are going to, these stories are going to play out, but what are some possible options for EBR in terms of there's obviously value for you to remain independent and sort of working with the Abbots and and the others out there who have their own compatible systems. Certainly you could be acquired by one of those larger companies. Does it, do you have a, a path that you think makes most sense for not only for EBR shareholders, but also for the space? Yeah. So my, my philosophy, every time I am in a CEO role, my philosophy is the same is that I want to build a sustainable company. So I don't ever think about planning for a sale or planning for acquisition. Now, those two activities may be the same. Planning for a sustainable company may make it an attractive target. So I just want to maintain optionality. You, you can't really control when somebody wants to buy you. What I can control is whether we're going to be a successful organization. So the options for us are we stay and thrive on ASX. You know, that's our public market and we have enough capital and we become profitable and stay there. We could do a list. There's uh, companies that stay on ASX and then list on NASDAQ. And then we could be acquired. So those are the three possibilities that I imagine is you know staying independent public, either ASX, ASX and NASDAQ, or at some point perhaps getting acquired. It is a natural fit for the for the big three. And um, but we we can't project if if and when that would happen. All right. Well, we'll be tracking the story for sure. And John, it's great to reconnect with you. And thanks for sharing your uh, your many experiences in medtech. Thanks, Tom. Looking forward to next time. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please make sure you register for Device Talks West happening October 18th and 19th. Seriously, it's going to be a great, great, great two days. Super valuable, super powerful, super enjoyable, and uh, super affordable. $6.95 to, for, for two days of, of event and uh, a networking session on top of that. So uh, make sure you join us. Go to devicetalks.com. While you're there, check out all of our Device Talks Podcast Network podcasts. And uh, if you'd like to have them sent directly to you, make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. Please share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast on your podcast, I'm sorry, on your social media channels. And uh, when you do, connect with me. I am Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. And even if you don't share, please connect with me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I would love to have more connections. Uh, would be great to connect with folks out there. So please just take 15 seconds to find me on LinkedIn and push connect. And I will uh, I will connect right back and give you a little note thanking you for connecting with me because I really am grateful uh, when more folks uh, reach out. So please do find me on LinkedIn. You can also find my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker there. Chris as in a Newmarker. He's executive editor of Life Sciences. So that is a wrap. Again, we'll have a Striker Talks for you next week. More Device Talks weeklies. And uh, I hope to see you at Device Talks West. And I hope to uh, hear from you at our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great week. Thank you.